Today's kind of a, a special Sunday for PJ and I. I don't know if you realize it or not, but it was four years ago today on Super Bowl. It may have been a day or two different, but uh, we came and actually candidated here, and you guys grilled us, and for some reason, you said yes, and we said yes, and we came. And so uh, it's been a journey. It's been fun the last four years, and uh, it's even a little bit warmer today than it was on that day. So uh, as the story goes, and I love telling that story, when we touched down in Minneapolis, it was minus 33. It was shut down, and uh, again, it, was, it had been snowing and been really cold, and half the Mall of America was shut down because they couldn't get employees in. And PJ looked at me, and she says, are you sure? <laughs> and uh, we are, and we are still sure. So again, today's a special day. It's also Super Bowl Sunday, but for the most part, I don't think any of our teams are in it, so oh well. Yeah. Oh boy, good to be here this morning. As you know, we've been working through the book of Samuel, and uh, with that we've been focusing on Samuel himself. Again, that's uh, the main author, the main character, the main reason, and hopefully you've been learning some lessons, but as we've been studying Samuel, is Samuel the most important person? No, right? Who is the most important person? God. Always. If you, if nothing else, we should tease about the Sunday school answer, but if you always say God first or Jesus, you, you, you're going to be in the right more than you're going to be wrong, right? God first. And you'll see in today's lesson that, that it's really important to put God first because as we know, it does, that doesn't always happen. We sometimes forget or God gets moved down on that list, if we can be honest, and we put other things ahead of that. God's very strict about that, and he calls that out, and he calls it idolatry, right? Anything that gets in our way of our relationship with God is idolatry. And so, um, and God takes that very seriously. And so we'll see that. Now, Samuel, and again, if you haven't been with us, you'll, you'll catch up because I'll get you up to speed. We've worked through the first three chapters, but we learned that having two wives is a great thing, Right? Can you imagine two wives and you got Valentine's Day coming? By the way, guys, it's on Tuesday, just in case you were wondering. I don't know about you, but I struggle with just buying for one. I cannot imagine buying for two. Um, again, Valentine's Day is coming, guys. Don't forget. Um, but we learned that even out of that, right, there was anarchy in the home, right? Hannah had no children. Pina had many. And... Her husband tried to keep him happy, but it didn't work, right? It just did not happen. But we see that Hannah, Samuel's mom, was a faithful woman and that she prayed for a child and prayed especially for a son and that she actually made a vow that if she was given a son, that she would dedicate him to the temple and for a life of ministry. And so she does that, and we saw in chapter 2 where she actually fulfilled that vow came at some cost, it came at a, a lot of heartache, but yet God blessed her through that. So Samuel's being raised up in the temple, and right, he has godly examples to, to follow, right? No, no. Unfortunately, the, the priest at the time, Eli, was not a godly man. May have started out that way, we don't know exactly, but certainly through the years he had waned, and as he got older, he got further and further away from God, and he brought up his two boys who were even worse than him, 
And sadly, we read about them and, and how the, the evil things that they were doing and disrespecting God. You'll see that theme today. Disrespecting God is not a good thing. It does not end well, ever. And so we'll see that clearly. But so Samuel's being raised in that with no example. And again, there's prophecy against the house of Eli. In fact, that, that no-name prophet, if you remember right, said that your line will no longer continue. We're going to remove you from the temple. We're not going to allow you in this role, and we're not going to allow your sons to continue either. And so it comes very seriously. And then last week, chapter 3, we're getting there, we're moving along. Last chapter 3, we talked about hearing from God. Right? Samuel got that call from God, and he, he got it audibly. And we spent a lot of time, right? It took more than once. Samuel, and we likened this three times, and then actually the fourth, that he was open and listening. And we likened that to here, right? Many times God's calling or God's talking to us, we're just not listening. We don't hear from God. Now, God gave Samuel some hard news. If you remember the, the, the word that he gave, is, he says, you're going to start the ministry, but you've got a tough task to start off with. You've got to tell Eli that he's no longer going to be the priest and that his line's going to end. God has said it. And so he delivers that message, and Eli receives it at that point, kind of giving up hope that, all right, God's going to do what God's going to do. And that's the beginning of Samuel's ministry. And so that's kind of where we pick up the story this morning with chapter 4. I want to put a disclaimer out there, and you know this is not me. If you're a regular attender, and remember, you know this is not me, but we're going to fly through three chapters and a little more, right? And we're not going to do every verse, because otherwise we may be here till Wednesday. Uh, and, and, and it may take that long if I... But again, it's a historical account, so we're going to narrate some of it. Um, narrate, Bryce. We're not going to make it up or skip over. Bryce was trying to fill in the words of what that would mean, and I said, uh, that doesn't sound very good, but we'll narrate some of it. But I would encourage you to go back and read it. And again, it's a historical account. There's a lot that's going on at this time. But remember, Israel's not following God. They're not doing well at this point. This is coming out of that time of the judges where they've cycled again and again, over and over, of trusting God for a while, they have a deliverer, and then going back into sin, getting further away from God, and needing correction. And so now they're in that point of time where they need some correction. I, I was listening to Joe's, we, we, we jokingly called Joe's the mini-sermon ahead of the, the regular sermon, and so now Joe was a good guy this morning. I've got some bad news if you don't follow God. So Joe, you set me up, so, so I'll be the contrast this morning. Good cop, bad cop, No. there's any police officers here, you know I love you and spend time with you, so it's not that. Chapter 4, we will start off with a few verses, though. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Apac. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. As the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefields. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord, the covenant from Shiloh, 
so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. You can learn a lot about the situation here just from these two verses. You kind of get a little glimpse into what's going on. Philistines, right? They're the arch enemies. They're going to be around for a while. They, they're a part of that group that did not get conquered, right? I've said the, the judges, right? They're in the promised land, but they didn't get totally defeated. They're, they're still there. In fact, they're on the, the eastern side, they're, or the western side, sorry, the, the western side of them, but they're on the eastern side of, of the water, but they're in the, on the water side. And Israel's kind of gotten pushed inland a little bit, and they're in the middle, and there's this group that is continually at war with Israel. And quite often, uh, even if you weren't at war with them, that you would quite often go across uh, the lines a little bit. You'd steal a little bit and go back, right? Raiding parties was common. And so probably Israel did not take this threat serious at the beginning. Notice one of the first things that you notice is you don't hear anything about the Lord. They didn't ask the Lord. They didn't talk to him before the battle. Samuel's not involved. Eli's not involved. There's nothing mentioned about God before the battle. And what happens? 4,000 get eliminated. Now, they do realize that there's a problem, right? This is not supposed to happen. We're God's chosen people. We're, we're, we're to win, right? We, we've seen victory after victory, but all of a sudden we don't. We lose. And 4,000 foot soldiers lose their life. So it's a wake-up call. In fact, the elders or the older generation that would have known the, the history and all that say, what happened? Why did the Lord allow this to happen? But look at their answer, though, or look what they think is going to be the, the solution to this, right? Let's go get the covenant, right? Let's go, go grab this holy artifact that God has established, and let's, let's take that and bring it to the battlefield, Right? Not a good idea. And you'll see why in a few minutes. Again, they don't treat it with respect. They're not doing things correctly at this point. It basically becomes like a good luck charm to them. And God's not pleased. Verse 4 says, So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherim and the cherim. And Eli's two sons, Hophen and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's to the camp shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Then their commander said, Be strong, Philistines. Be men of, or you will be subject to these Hebrews. They have been to you. Be men and fight. It's interesting here that the enemy actually recognizes more a God than the, the actual people who are bringing it. That's how flipped this gets. Remember, Samuel has that flipping all the time, right? He, he turns the tables. What we think would be normal is abnormal. And he turns the table. And it's no different here. The, the Philistines recognize and say, hey, oh no, there's a God in the camp. We got to be careful. We're, we're, we're in trouble, right? And again, not just the, the God or the current God, but they remember all the way back to Egypt. 
Now, if you look at your history, there's a long time that's taken, inspired since that, right? Remember the Moses, the desert, Joshua? There's a lot of years that have gone by, but yet that's what they remember about God. And they remember that not only did the Israelites win and defeat, but they also, and you'll see here, right? There was trouble that came upon them. You'll see here, God reminds them even once again, but I'm getting ahead of myself, or as someone says, getting over the front of my skis. But the Philistines recognize this, but yet they, they take courage, right? They're in a, a no-win situation. They're, they've already gotten Israel now provoked by killing the first 4,000. Now the armies have rose, and they're, they're at the border. There's a fight going to happen, and if they don't fight, they know that they'll most likely be overrun, and they'll become slaves to the Israelites. And so they rise up, right? They, they courage up and they say, all right, we're going to go and fight this fight. Now, normally, if things were right with God and things were right with Israel, they would be defeated, right? They would be laid waste. The Philistines would have no chance, no matter the number. We see that over and over again in Scripture, but not here. Remember, things are not right in the Lord's house. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophen and Phinehas, were, they died. They died in battle. This is tragic. This is not supposed to happen. And on top of it, not only do they get defeated, but now they've lost the, the symbol or the, uh, the, uh, the one artifact that was God. In many ways, they, they've lost oh, their hope for worship. All right? that, that, that was it. That's the, that's the symbol. That's where they would go. This is sacred to them. This is a, a, something very, very important, and now it's gone. It's been captured. It's the only where in Scripture where this has happened, right? It's gone. It's no, not there anymore. Another clear. And the two upcoming priests are dead. Right? Another clear sign that things have gone terribly wrong. And it would be obvious to all of them that God is not with them anymore. They would say he's abandoned them. It's not true, right? Quick lesson here. This one's for free. Bonus point. God never leaves us. Who's the one that leaves? Us, right? Every time, right? God is always right there. We're the ones that walk away. We're the ones that think we've escaped or we've turned our backs on him. He is right there. He's not caught by surprise. He's not left them. He's still there. But they're the ones that have left. And so it comes with a harsh penalty here. Again, all totaled, if my math is correct, about 34,000 people have died. Soldiers. Back to Eli. Remember? Eli still has to be dealt with. Eli's the one that's spiritually still left in charge, although he's gotten much older now. And so verse 12 picks up that story with, with Eli here. And again, it's important because it's a part of the transition into Samuel, so... Bear with me here a little bit. 
It says, on that same day, Benjamin ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting in his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole crowd, the whole town, sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes had failed so that he could no longer see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, and the army happened, my son. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons are dead, and the ark of, the God, of God has been captured. Verse 18. It says, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man and was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Typical fashion, just so you know, also in history, whenever someone passes or there's a, a change in leadership, they mention how long they've been serving. And then 40 years is a long time. I mentioned earlier, I've been here four. I've got a ways to go if I think I'm going to make it in 40 years. Not quite sure I'll make it. I'm not sure that you would want me to make it all of those years. But that's a long time to serve, right? That's a, a long time to be in that spot. And tragically, it ends in grief, sadness. And for a priest to lose the ark is unforgivable in many ways. It's the last thing you'd want to do. But that's what's happened. Again, we see a little glimmer of hope that, that Eli was at least waiting and hoping that you know, the, the ark was going to return, right? He feared for it, and so he still had a reverence for it. He still knew what was important. But if you remember earlier on, he put his sons ahead of what was to be worshipped, right? His sons got ahead of God. Remember what I said earlier, right? God's always got to be first. And it can actually even be family members that get in the way. It can be things that we love, things that are good, but if they get in between God, they're wrong. And so Eli's judgment comes to, to bear. He's, he's now dead. His sons are dead. His line is no longer going to continue in this role. Although there is this daughter-in-law here, and again, one little bit, the wise who was pregnant, and again, I'm not going to read this. This is one of the parts I'm going to skip over a little bit. But I'm going to paraphrase this, and probably we'll pick it back up in chapter 5. But she has the baby, but she dies in labor. And she names the boy Ichabod. The glory has departed, right? She captures the moment, even on her deathbed, even though she's dying and she's just given birth, she names the boy, the glory has departed. And the reference is, the ark is gone, right? God, as far as she's concerned, as far as Israel's concerned, is no longer there. It's a dark day. It's a hard place to be when you think that you are all alone. So, flip the the page, or we'll flip the, to chapter 5, but we'll flip now to the Philistines for a little bit. 
So I think there's some really cool stuff in here, all right? So bear with me again. Again, not so much about Samuel, but some of the things that go on in, in the Philistines' camp are very interesting. <laughs> so someone's read ahead. Someone's like, right? So they captured the ark, right? They, they, they won. They won the battle. They've got the prize possession. They're setting pretty good right now, right? They're, things are, are great if you're a Philistine. You've won the day. In fact, in your mind, your God is better than their God. You're on top of the world. You're doing well. Well, maybe not so much. Let's read a little bit here in chapter 5. It says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it to Ebenezer, easy for me not to say, to Ashdod. There's a lot of R's in there. That's my my problem. Verse 2, Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. I don't know. Sometimes when I read scriptures, I I chuckle. I laughed when I read this several times, right? Now, just so you know, Dagon, I I learned a Hebrew word this week as well. I know I did a little study, a little more than normal. Dag means fish. There we go. That's a free lesson. I, I learned it. I looked it up. Dag in the Hebrew language means fish. And so this was the fish god, half fish, half man. That was the idol that the Philistines worshipped. Fishing made sense, right? They're on the ocean. They are part of that, that group that were good fishermen. Obviously, um, the man part would be part of the agricultural society as well. Again, there's many different interpretations. But they've actually found things about Dagon. They found writing proves the Bible about him. So it was a real thing. I love it when history proves the Bible correct. It's kind of one of those neat things that happens, right? But so you have this temple, and they put the ark in on, on one side, and they put their God on the other side, and guess what? He falls over. Isn't that cool? I mean, for no reason, right? There's no earthquake, there's nothing going on, and he falls over. But he doesn't just fall in any direction, but he falls face first in front of the ark of God. Get the imagery here, right? It's that, that prone position. It's that position of worship. Again, even though they're a pagan society, it's the same thing. Their, their form of worship would be to bow down. And so they have a real visual. Their God is bowing down to the Hebrew God. You got to say, wait a minute, we just captured this. we victorious, right? Our God should be better. Well, something must just happen. Maybe someone pushed him over, right? So they put him back up again. Watch what happens next. Again, Scripture sometimes is just, wouldn't be funny if I was there, but it's funny at this point looking back at it. I just put that disclaimer in there. But following, about the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor the, any other who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod stepped on the threshold. So word got out, right? Not only once did he fall down and bow down, now he falls twice, and now he's in pieces. He's broken, right? All that's left is his body, totally decapitated. Everything's gone. He's, he's bowed again. So once, maybe an accident, twice, yeah, no. In fact, the word goes out so much that now it becomes, that threshold becomes a sacred 
object. They're like, oh, that may be where, that's where our God tripped up, so we've got to be careful. They step over it. So then they step over the line, right? They don't, they don't they want to touch it. They step over it. I know a lot of baseball players do that. I know spring training is a ways away, but they won't step on the lines, right, when they go on the field. They'll cross over. Does hockey have any of those rules, Ryan? Or I bet you they have some superstitions, I'm, I'm sure. But again, it becomes superstition at that day. And so it's interesting how the defeat of the gods, even though it should be a high point, it becomes a, a test of who God is. Again, you can take a lot out of that as well, that God is still God, no matter where his place is. Again, we talk about a place here. We know that that's figurative. It's not, God's not restrained or confined to that spot. But again, for them, the visual, they could see that. Verse 6 here, and I'm not going to read all the way through this again. I'm going to jump along a little bit, but I think verse 6 is very uh, appropriate for what's going on because this gives us a perspective of what's going on here with the Lord and how he's dealing with the Philistines. Verse 6 says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay with us because his hand is so heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. Again, they recognize that ever since we've gotten this ark of the God, ever since we've captured it, things have not gone well. Things have gone terribly wrong. In fact, now we're being afflicted. Things are not happening. Our crops are not prospering. And guess what? Now we have tumors on us. Right? Remember what we said earlier, right? Scripture loops back around, and it's pretty interesting. But they remembered the tumors back in Egypt right? The plagues. And so now they see the same correlation. They see, uh-oh, this has not been good that we've had this. We've had this symbol for, he, for Israel, and now we got to get rid of We got to move it. Reminds me sometimes how, how foolish we think, right? If we change location, right, we can change our standing with God or change our circumstances. I had a wise pastor once tell me early on in ministry, he says, Charlie, you can keep moving, you know, you can move away from problems if things get tough. You can, you can move away. It's, it's easy to move. He said, there's always one problem. I said, what's the problem? You bring yourself. Ouch. Right? But here, they think the, the problem is, and they're correct in the fact that they've brought something that they should not have brought into their camp. And so now their idea is to get rid of it. Let's, let's move it on. Now, at this point, they're not ready to give it back to Israel. So they say, hey, let's just move it down, down the road a little bit. Let's move it down to a, another city. And so they keep it in the Philistine lands, and they move it. Again, I'm paraphrasing this now. We're jumping through a number of scriptures, so bear with me or go back and read it yourself. But again, God's hand is heavy, and the same thing happens over and over and over again. Right? As soon as it arrives, things go bad the Philistines. There's devastation, there's tumors, there's illnesses, crops don't grow, animals be at, start acting weird, right? Things don't go well. So they've got a problem, right? They, they've figured out the cycle now, they, they know what's going on, and so we'll pick it up here in, in chapter 6, and it hasn't been very long for them to figure it out, because we see in chapter 6, verse 1, 
It says, when the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. Ah, light bulb moment, right? They figured it out. It's not working for us to keep it. It's not working out at all. In fact, it's causing us more problems. we got to send it back, but we know that we need to send it back properly, right? Now, how do we, how do we handle this now? How do we handle the situations? And interesting, this is a pagan society, a pagan culture, yet they have some sense of awe of the ark of God. They have some respect for it, you could even say more respect at this point than Israel had for it. Again, God is still God. So, they set up this elaborate plan or the way of honoring the ark of God and to send it back. They send it back with certain cows and they send it back with some golden rats. The rats are thought to be part of the symbol of the tumors. I'm not sure how the correlation comes and Commentaries weren't very good on that, but either way, they send this basically with a gift to give it back. In fact, they don't bring it back to where they got it. They actually bring it back to the shortest route. They, they run it right across the line from where they were. And if you're thinking about it, they could not wait to get this back on that side of the border. And they're like, let's get, let's get rid of this. These are Charlie paraphrases in case you're wondering. You won't find that in Scripture, but the location-wise is true. Right? They didn't go back to Shiloh. They went directly across. In fact, they're going to bring it to Beth Shema. And that's where they're going to bring it back over the border. So verse 13 and 6. I know I just skipped a bunch of verses, but you get the idea. Verse 13 says, Now the people of Beth Shema were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of jo- jo- yeah, Joshua of Bethshema and where it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Bethshema offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned the same day to Ekron. Again, a couple things to notice, right? They, they immediately, the Israelites that are there, they recognize it's coming back to us. And in typical fashion, they set up an altar. They, they, it needs to be worshipped. It's come back to us. There's hope, right? There's, there's hope that, that, that there's still some remnant of faith in there. There's something that's calling them back to God. And so they set this up. They set an altar and they worship and they, they start sacrificing, right? The, they even call the Levites to do this work. Again, according to Scripture, God is. There's some hope here. There's at least a few that still remember who God is and the way he wants to be worshipped. And so that's what we have going on here. But not all. Verse 17, as we read on in this a little bit in chapter 6, it says, These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as guilt offerings to the Lord, one each for the, the countries. The number of gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers. 
fortified towns with their country villages, the large rock in which Levi set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshema. But, you know, but's a key word, right? Verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Bethshema, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. People mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. And the people of Bethshema asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Sad, right? Sadly, in many ways, they had started out good. They started out with worship. They recognized the ark. Things were going well for some of them, but there were a few that couldn't help themselves. They wanted to see what was inside. They wanted to peek, right? Say, well, that's no big deal, right? We all get curiosity, right? Some of you that get gifts, or some of you, I'll mention you ladies, are wondering what your husbands are going to bring to you on Valentine's Day, right? I can't bring mine into the house. PJ will snoop and look and try to find it. Or if you give a box, right? You love to shake it. So I can, I can give them a little bit of grace, but again, it's getting things out of order. It's not respectful to God. It's not what they have been instructed. It's not what was supposed to happen. And so God deals with them very, very severely. Right? They're treating it improperly, and God strikes down 70 of them. You know, in that verse, you might want to underline the, the end of 20. It says, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the holy God? It's a key verse to that. So then they send word out. They don't, they don't, they're not sure they want to keep it either, right? They, this has happened. This has now become a reminder of the death of some of their, their people, some of those folks in their village. And they're like, ah, we're not so sure we want to keep this. This may not be the place for this to rest. And so they send word out here and say, hey, the Philistines have given it back to us, but now where do we want to put it? Where do we want it to rest? Verse 7, uh, chapter 7. So the men of Kareth, Jerem, came, to, came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinai's house on the hill and consecrated Elkazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kareth, Jerem, as long, a long time, 20 years in all. So they bring it up to a hill, a place to worship. It's a little further inland now at this point. It's also a little more secure but it now becomes the place of worship. Many believe the reason they didn't bring it back to Shiloh is because when the Philistines defeated them, that it was probably laid bare, or there wasn't much there. It was in a rebuilding state. But again, that's not no way of proving that. They, they haven't found Shiloh only since Jeremiah's time. So it was rebuilt. Jeremiah, there's a, there's a, there's a kick for you, Ernie. You get a little bit of credit for that. I thought when I was reading that, but again, it's down the road a long ways before Shiloh becomes a place again. So it's thought that's why it didn't go back there. But again, they've set it up on a hill. They've set it somewhere that it's somewhat centrally located. It's now a place where everyone can come and worship. And so it stays there for 20 years, which is a long time. It's a, a, a good established place. Only a few more verses here for this morning, but I, again, I want to transition because I, I do want to get back to Samuel. I promise you this is a study about Samuel, but the backstory is important as well, and it's a good reminder for us and good lessons as we go along. 
So picking up in verse 2, right? It says, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Hearts. Then Israel writes, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs, and the, commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Asherahs and serve the Lord only. And I say that, and I wanted to make sure I got into chapter 7 a little bit, because now you see that turning back. You also see Samuel's role, right? Samuel now has stepped up. He's become that leader. He's that spiritual leader, and he's saying, if, if you truly want to get back to right relationship with God, then you've got some work to do. You've got some things you've got to get rid of. You've got to pull these things, these idols that are in your way. Right? They're impeding you from really worshiping God. I'm sure you can see the relationship or the correlation that I want to leave with you this morning, right? What's in the way of our worship? What's in the way of our being fully committed to God? What idol has gotten in between us and God? Again, it's the same call for us. What, what is it? If, if I really want to follow the Lord, what's in the way? What do I need to take out? What do I need to put in its proper place? Remember I said, it can be even something good. It can be something that we value, and it can be a good thing, but again, it's not to be above God. And so we may not just have to take it out, but we may have to reshuffle or reorder our lives. Because it's Valentine's Day, I'll, I'll give you a free marriage lesson, a, a, a quickie marriage lesson, right? I ask this of every couple when they're sitting before me, usually as we're getting close to that wedding day, I'll say, what's your priorities. The answer that I'm hoping that I hear is God first, my spouse second, and everything else after that. And if you have kids or work, whatever else is after that. But that's the answer I'm looking for, and that should be the goal of all of us as believers, right? God first, spouse second, kids, and so on from there. And if you're single, God first, and everything else after that. It's a little bit easier. Maybe that's why Paul mentions that uh, later on. So I want to leave you that this morning. And again, it's a reflective question, and then hopefully there's some hope in that as well. But what's in the way? What is in the way of our worship of our Lord? What is in the way? Bow with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word that continually shows us who you are and how faithful you are. Lord, I thank you that we can come and worship together as the body of Christ this morning. And Lord, be reminded of these things. Lord, I also pray that if we've gotten things out of order, or if we've got something in between us and you, that this morning we make that commitment to get rid of it to tear down the idols, to get rid of them. And Lord, maybe it's not something that we need to get rid of, Lord, but maybe it's something that we just need to put in the right order. And Lord, I ask that you would help us with that. Help us to put our lives in order that we worship you first and foremost. For you are worthy to be praised. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.